Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, this is Anne-Marie Lockhart, and you're listening to Vox Poetica's 15 Minutes of Poetry. And I have a really great guest today. Um, she's somebody that I have known from the beginning of the Vox Poetica experience. And um, she is somebody that I have met and heard her read her stuff and been kind of involved in her writing process. And um, I just think she's fantastic, and you will too. You've seen her work at Vox Poetica. Um, Let me welcome Kay Middleton to the show. Thanks for joining me, Kay. Hi. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, We're going to open with a reading of one of your poems. Would you start for us? I sure will, um, and then when I'm done, I'll, I'll tell you how the poem came to me. Um, it's called Of Man and Things. Test the distance between cedar and titanium, where displacement and density balance, order over disorder. The degree between warm blood and cool chemical reside side by side, and humans elevate to gods, small g. Fear the plague, the illness that strips rich of gold and plunders the society, whether flea or fiber, whether game or graft. Is there anything blessed about commodification, economy, physics, or philosophy? Or is it always the characterization of greed? Listen to the silence of the night, pre-dawn when the birds sleep when even the breeze passes silent between the leaves, when breath passes between dreams. Truth resides in that moment when man is not the measure. And sometimes sometimes a poem will come to me in an image, but often it comes to me in a word. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this particular poem uh, came to me in the word commodification. I was re I know, I know. It's really a big, big word for a poem, isn't it? I was it reading it sounds so poetic, you know. <laughs> no. Well that's why it got me, I think. I was I was reading a a post from my nephew who's a, a doctorate in um and teaches uh, medical ethics and he made a post regarding the commodification of healthcare. And that word just leapt off the page at me and I had to go find out what it meant and carried around with me for a while, and eventually um, it did become a poetic word, didn't it? Mm-hmm. It really did, and I think um, in such a nice way because it doesn't, it doesn't as the, as a centerpiece for the poem, it doesn't lead things off and it doesn't close things out, but it, it sits there right in the middle, everything built around it in such an yeah. interesting way. When you yeah. constructed the poem, was that kind of where it fit in, or did you start with it at the beginning or the end instead? Um, I started with that word at the top of the page, as I often do. Mm. If I have a word I want to play with, I'll I'll put it at the top of the page. And then I, I start writing um, free form, in a paragraph form, just everything that I can think, sort of stream of consciousness. Then I leave it alone for a while, um, sometimes just a few minutes, sometimes a few days. Then I go back and I begin to pull the poem from that paragraph. And mm-hmm. and commodification just sort of um, accidentally ended up right in the middle. It's almost exactly in the middle, isn't it? It is almost exactly in the middle, and it seems to me to be exactly the right spot for it. You know, everything everything just really does 
gel around it in such a such a nice way. Um, how does your process for writing fiction differ from how you write poetry? I know that those two things are very integrated for you. How do you go about them in in different formats? What do you how do you know when you're writing fiction or when you're writing a poem, for example? Um, I usually don't know um, at the beginning. <laughs> uh, and I write in a lot of stream of consciousness. I try to open up a blank page every day and just write something down. And sometimes nothing comes from that. And sometimes it's and it's often where, well near the bottom of the page before I get to anything of any value. Um, I think that's called clearing your throat. Um, and well, and sometimes there's a phrase or a sentence at the bottom, or sometimes that musing just goes on and on and and then becomes becomes fiction um, when I'm working on the novel, I'm trying to incorporate a lot of poetic devices there, a lot of poetic hmm. language um because when i read a when I read a novel, that's one of the things I enjoy seeing, so I, I'm trying to make it I'm trying to make them one and the same. Um, tell us about the novel, if you will. Uh, well, this is actually the third novel. Uh, the first two are in the bottom desk drawer because agents don't seem to like it. Um, but, I, but we all understand about paying our dues, right? Um, this, this book is different. This book is different, and I think it'll be a series. It's historical fiction. Um, based in the mid-1800s in Michigan. And the nice thing about writing historical fiction is that the characters can have a more poetic voice. People mm-hmm. don't talk very yeah. poetically these days. So so that's that's kind of how that ties in there. So you can you can see parts of it uh at my website, kmiddleton.net, and I'll try to post some things there from time to time, pique some interest, hopefully an agent's interest. That would be wonderful. And we'll try to spread the word on that to get some agent eyes upon it. That would be great. Um right. You uh, have been writing fiction for a long time. Did you start with fiction or poetry? Was the first thing you felt comfortable as a writer in which medium? Um, you know, when I when I was very young, I wrote short stories and tried a novel. Um, the poetry came to me probably about fifteen years ago in a very powerful way. Um, it's it's really useful for helping you to work out any little issues that you have. Uh, it's also more musical, so. Um, now I write poetry because I love it. It certainly doesn't pay the rent. <laughs> um, my next question is one I ask of all of my guests. When did you realize you were a writer? When did you identify that way? Uh, when I got my first acceptance. Up to that point, uh, I knew it was something I wanted to do, but it, mm-hmm. as soon as somebody else published something, it became really serious then. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the process of submitting your work and having it accepted and what all is entailed in that. But actually, first, before we talk about that, I'd like you to read the second poem that we had chosen for today. Okay. And this poem came because I was musing about the difference between a dormouse and a shrew. Um, (laughs) And it's kind of dedicated to the preposition of... Uh, It's titled, Of One Small Mammal. Um, The interesting thing I'd like to mention about poetry is is I think it's important to both see it and to hear it. Um, Some of your poems on Vox Poetica have had audio files, and and I wish more of your contributors would do that. It's good to hear how the 
how the poet see how the poet hears the poem. It's good to hear the music of the poem. But it's also good to see it on the page. And in this particular case, if you listen for the prepositional phrases that begin with of and understand that they're separated out from the body of the poem. Mm-hmm. Of one small mammal, between dormouse and shrew, she searches for existence, solutions for dreams to survive the night, the nightmares of escalating drama. Imperfection, degrees of flaw, casting long and longer shadows, scampering for dark spaces, then light in dappled reflections of the forest floor. How to act or react when confusion's cloud abounds, one scarcely tracks time. Evolution, examination beyond the capacity of one small mammal. Battling blame for disruption, the world tilts out of kilter when the owl hunts, darts for morning, or some semblance of a new beginning. In a rare instant of clarity, she believes in balance, in the courage and the compromise, and wants only for possibilities of certain survival. Um it is definitely very musical and lyrical, and um, it, it, the images are wonderful. And I can see really clearly in this poem that overlap between fiction and poetry, how you write, your particular style in that. Um, let's talk about the submission process and how you have gone about getting your work published. Well, submissions aren't what you think they are when you start. You think, you know, you read a magazine or a journal or a website and you love their poetry and you think, oh, I write stuff like that, I'll send them one. And so you do, and then they reject you, and then maybe you do that again (laughs) in three or four months once you recover from the wounds, and they reject you. And and a lot of people lose their steam there. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm fortunate to be a member of the Albright Poets, and many of those poets there are published and published before I was, and it was their encouragement that that made me submit in volume and and more often. And it was their encouragement that kept me going on even after my first 39 rejections. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? How would, why would you continue to go on? You know, I, I'm reminded of a ninth grade boy trying to get a date for the dance, you know. Um, <laughs> you just don't want to try again after the first couple times. Um, but so you really, did, and it did pay off. And, and and like you said, persistence is such a an important factor in it. And support. Absolutely. Tell us about the Albright Poets. I love this group. It's my favorite reading group across the country. I think you all know how special you are to me. But I want yeah. everyone to know how special you are as as a group in general. What makes it work? Wow. What makes it work is is the support. Um, uh, we've been meeting probably ten years. I, I came in after the first two years. Um, we had a great mentor, uh, Dr. Bob Christen, um, uh, English professor retired, who started teaching at the Adult Learning Center and kind of gathered us all together um, in, in his living room twice a month. But we not only read our poetry to each other, um, we not only continue to meet even even after he has moved, um, we, we give each other little assignments. We share publication uh, credits. 
we help each other with word choice. We support each other. It, it's, it's, and there's no competition. Anytime any one of us is published, it's a celebration for all of us. And that's I rare. have definitely gotten that. Uh, it's totally. It's very rare, and I, it is definitely a very real part of the experience of being in that group. Um, and even when you're reading your work for one another, when suggestions are made for certain things. There is no animosity or there's no sense of distrust. It's completely supportive and a very, very warm, nurturing environment for writers. Um, yes. When you're yes, talking I... about persistence, you know, nurturing is such a key component to that <laughs> so that you do mm-hmm. have the strength to go back and try something over again. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we don't often get good feedback from editors when we get rejections. They just seem terribly personal. Maybe you could talk for a minute about what that's about and, and help us uh, heal those wounds a little bit. Well, you know, I, it's funny you and I have talked about this. The um, Sometimes it's a question of when I'm reading something, where my head is at, whether I feel it's going to work one day or another or a different day. It might have a different take on it. But uh, one thing you said that I think is critical, as an editor I'm speaking, that's something you just said now, su- submitting in mass, sending, you know, send me five poems, don't send me one. If you send me one and it doesn't fit right, it's a rejection straight up. If you send me five, you're more likely to hit something that's going to work for my publication. Um, and and persistence is also key. I, I do often, when I when I do reject something, I do often give a little heads up about why. And that can vary from it's just not the right style, it doesn't really work with what I publish, um, or it's not the right theme. You know, that sometimes, I mean, I've gotten some stuff that's really way too edgy for Vox. <laughs> you know, and I often direct people elsewhere, but I, you know, I usually come back and say, if you have something that is more fitting, um, send it. And people sometimes send things again. Some people I never hear from again, but other people do send another round of submissions. And um, more often than not, Submission number two or three or four, you know, there is something there that will work. So persistence is key and sending more. Let me see the range of stuff that you write. That makes it a lot uh, a lot more likely you're going to find something. Um, well, and it's really important to read the guidelines for the journal um, and to follow those. If they say they don't want love poems, yes. don't send them love poems. Um, so if you – but as I read the guidelines and they say send no more than five poems – when I'm selecting my five, should I try to show the the vast difference in my writing? In other words, should I send some long and some short and on different topics, or should I stick strictly to things that I think mirror what I've seen already published? I, I would say um, go with a range because even if none of those five is what the editor is looking for, if they see within your range a level of um, – of quality that they're looking for. They'll welcome additional submissions, and, and in that case, you can make, be maybe a little more targeted your second time around. But I think a range is always a good thing to show, as long as you are within the bounds. And, and really, demonstrate that you know the journal. You're totally right. Read the guidelines. Usually, people are pretty clear about what they want and even clearer about what they don't want. <laughs> and right. if you send them what they don't want, I mean, I've had people send to me who have never read the journal at all. And I can tell that looking at it. <laughs> you know, I know yeah. this is clearly not meant for my, and that's that's just not going to get anywhere. It's not really beneficial 
for the writer or the editor to go through the time-wasting exercise of that. Um, save yourself right. the energy. Read the guidelines and see what they say. And some of them leave a lot of room for interpretation and others do not. If the journal is available online and you can read the content, read as much of it as you can. If it's a journal that's subscription-based only and you can't see very much, I think editors will give you a lot more latitude in what they expect you to understand. Um, in this day and age, I don't think too many editors expect you to have been a, a subscriber for five years before you get the nerve to submit. You know, I just don't think that's a realistic expectation for anyone to have. But, you know, definitely no. see what's out no. there. Read what's out there. You know, get a sense Well, of and I often, I often do that if it's not online, although even, even most printed journals have some material online. Yes. But you don't have yes. to buy all those subscriptions either. We do have a public library, and you can go to the yes. Barnes & Noble and read um, for a few minutes and buy some coffee. And there are other ways besides um, spending thousands of dollars a year on, on uh, subscriptions. So. Exactly. Although that said, if they are offering, a, you know, pick up one issue, <laughs> you know, support them in some way because you they're bet. a journal that, you know, hopefully is going to be around a lot longer and the way to keep them around is to, to support them and to do all that. You know, our, our writers, there's so much to say on this subject. We have a hard time supporting our own craft, I think, and and, and we'll, God, there's like 10 episodes alone in that topic, so <laughs> we're going to... We're going to revisit that. I do want you to read something else. We are kind of out of time, but I want to hear this last. Piece. Well, I, I will okay. make this very, very. I'll make my story very short. Poems come to us <laughs> in lots of different ways. Uh, this one found me standing in line at a bank. A little blue-haired lady behind me said, um, "The trouble is, you'll live to regret it." And I thought, <laughs> "What on earth has she experienced that she's living to regret?" And I don't know that she had this experience. I certainly never did, but um, in my imagination I did. Trouble is, the trouble is there are still summer evenings, sultry evenings when I remember the way the bed of your pickup truck felt. Cold metal ridges through my thin shirt, your hot mouth on mine, when I remember the field of stars I could not see through my closed eyes as your lust consumed mine. The trouble is, no matter which choice I might have made, it was sure to be wrong, sure to escape me decades future reflecting on the trouble. And don't I wish I knew her name so I could thank her for that. <laughs> you know, I bet she wishes you knew it too because she could be thanked publicly for that inspiration. <laughs> I always say, like, the best thing about you know, hopefully when we're all old and telling our stories, is that we have really good stories like that one to tell. <laughs> even if we've made them up, Emory, even, even if we've if, made them up. Even if, who cares? <laughs> That's, right. That's right. I love that poem. And, um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of uh, the stuff that I've liked a lot of yours has been um, the characterization poems, the stuff that you write out of imagining someone else's experience. Um, yeah. You know, off the yeah. top of my head, I can think of several of yours that that fall into that category, and they're they're really so alive and authentic. The voice is always so clear and identifiable and believable, and I think those are great. You do a wonderful job with that. Thank you, thank you. Well, we are folks out of to do some um, to do some reading for you, so we can hear more voice on Vox as well. 
Yes, we want to definitely encourage more audio. Nancy was the first to, um, Kay, Kay was the first to give us her, sorry, (laughs) to give us her audio for her poem all October. And um, that was the very first audio we had there. And it was a really well-received piece, and people listen to it all the time, actually. People are constantly on there listening to it. So um, go back to the Vox Poem blog and find that and uh, listen to that. And, and can I and can I plug and just thank Mark Gooch for helping make that happen? He's a regular wizard. He did make that happen. He's the one who got the audio file working in the right format so that I was able to post it. If it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have worked out. Um, <laughs> so you know, it wasn't just it was not that was not just a one person deal that was a communicative oh, no. effort on on lots of parts there so that that we're all grateful to mark for that um he also has an audio recording up there on the site in fact there are a number of people who yeah. do we do want more but um but mark's is up there too a more recent poem of his um we want to leave with another uh mention of your website Kay. if you'd give us that again Sure, it's kmiddleton.net. I, th- I think you have a link, link too on some of my some of the publications on Box, but it's easy to find. I do. You can always backtrack through. I always link back to the last poem somebody had, and then there's a whole bunch of links usually in other places, and sometimes they come up again, so you can find links to that um, in, in Kay's work, Kay Middleton at Box Poetica. So um, Google her. You can find her very easily online. Um Thank you for being here with me today. I'm looking forward to reading more of your novel and hearing more about its journey to publication, which I'm sure will happen. We just don't know when. From your lips. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you have a great and creative week. I hope that you get a lot written and hope even more that you do a lot of wonderful reading. Um, I'll be back again next week, and uh, I hope to have gotten a lot more good stuff um, going on to tell you about. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.